For the first time ever, I am thrilled to say we have an official sponsor for the Dirk Talk podcast, and that's Ariat. I've worn Ariat boots on every job site I've visited over the years, traveling in them across five continents. More importantly, I have yet to find a single project where working folks, unlike me, are not wearing Ariat boots and workwear in every condition imaginable. And there's really good reason for that. And that's because it's phenomenal stuff. And the more I've learned about Ariat and the company, the more I've loved their brand. So with this, Ariat is offering any Dirt Talk listener 10% off their next Ariat order at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk. That's 10% off boots, jeans, and workwear at ariat.com slash Dirt Talk or at the link in this episode's description. With that, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Dirt Talk. I'm your host, Aaron Witt, on a mission to make the dirt world a better place. Now, last week, due to my own stupidity, I forgot to schedule a guest and create a podcast. So instead, I sat down and started talking about my construction experience. Now, in about 45 minutes, I did not get all the way through it. So instead of a guest this week, we are going to continue on the Aaron Witt Construction Experience Saga with part two. And I left off last week with my time on Union Pacific Railroad just north of Glamis, California in the middle of the desert with Skanska. And that was fun. So I we, we built those bridges and then I thought... I had finally made it out, and okay, I can leave the terrible garbage Best Western in Yuma, Arizona, and I could go back home, and they'll put me on a project in Phoenix, and I go to them for next my next assignment. I have, I don't know, maybe five or six weeks left till school, you know, just ride the wave, just just almost there, almost there. And they say, guess what, Aaron? You're going back to the railroad, buddy, but not to Yuma. Not to a place that at least had a Chipotle and a Chick-fil-A by the hotel. No, 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 no. You're going to Tacna, Arizona. And if you've ever driven from Arizona to San Diego on Interstate 8, it's I-8, I think it is, you've driven right through Tacna, Arizona, but you probably haven't noticed it because all it is is a gas station. And then 20 minutes down the road from Tacna, Arizona, down the interstate, is a microtel with another gas station. So it was not better than Yuma and Glamis. It was a step down from that. And it was, again, railroad work. We weren't building bridges this time for Union Pacific. We were building more siding track, which is extra track on the side of the mainline track where trains can essentially pull over to allow other trains to pass them. All the trains are prioritized. So there's specific trains that are more important than the other trains. And when a more important train comes along, other trains will pull over and then that train will continue going through so it doesn't have to stop and it can reach its destination when it needs to. Again, the railroad is a well-oiled machine. So we were grading for the siding track, putting down all the aggregate base and preparing it for the Union Pacific crews to come in and actually lay the track. 
I would drive out there. We were working uh, maybe five, six days a week, and uh, I would stay in the micro hotel, micro hotel by myself. I would bring all my food with me in a cooler because there was absolutely nowhere to eat out there, and I would just microwave it in my hotel, and I'd go to work, you know, show up at five and work all the way through. This one, it was a little slower paced, so I would spent some time just hanging out. There was a burrito store. It's unbelievable. If you ever find yourself in Tacna, Arizona, look up Gonzo's Market. It's a very nondescript building with a big sign that says Gonzo's Market on top. It looks a little shady. Not very trustworthy, but I'm telling you, they make the best damn burritos you will ever have. I'm from Arizona. I've had some damn good burritos. These are world class. And I stop there every time I drive to San Diego and it is just, it's glorious in so many different ways. So that would be the highlight of my day. That's how I got through my few weeks um, in working in Tacna. I would get a burrito every day. And that's really all it was to this job. I do have one story. It was probably the closest I've ever been to getting fired. I was, I, I was certain I was going to get fired this day and it, it's just my stomach dropped. We were running some scrapers alongside the track digging. I don't know. We were taking maybe a foot or two out. It wasn't a whole lot. So the scrapers were running through and and they hit a spool of wire, uh, this black cable, not very thick. So it's a whole spool of it. And UP comes over and they say, you know, we, we say, well, what is this? This looks like a potential problem. And they say, no, nah, it's, it's no big deal. We, we do that from time to time. We just bury these spools. I, I forget why they do it. They had a reason for it. So all they said was, it's no problem. Just tear it out and keep on going with your business. A few hours later, I drive over there. And sure enough, uh, another spool of, of black cable was exposed in our cut. Rather than go ask somebody, they had just cleared the other one. I figured, well, I'll be responsible. I will be proactive and I will handle this problem on my own. And keep in mind, I was 20 at the time, so I couldn't even legally drink still. So I go over and get the backhoe. And of course, I I was looking for any opportunity imaginable to drive the damn backhoe. So I go get in the backhoe. I drive over there. And I dig up the spool of cable and I cast it aside. I put the backhoe back, go back to my company pickup truck. And that was that. A job well done. Until there's a frantic call over the radio saying, we've lost all signal, you know, between mile marker X and mile marker Y. And that's where we were working. And they said, there's a big problem. So when when there's no signal, you can't figure out where trains are on the track and it leads them to believe that there may be a break, a fracture in the rail. So what happens is until they can locate the problem in the signal line, they have to make trains go five miles per hour. So because I tore that cable out, they had to stop all trains going from their usual 60 miles an hour to five miles per hour. And I counted, I think there were six or seven trains that rolled by us at five miles per hour while the signal crew repaired my mistake. And what was even worse was I had to get on the radio after they declared that the signal was out and say, I think I know why, because I did it. I tore it out with a backhoe. And then I had to show the signal crew exactly where I dug with the backhoe. It was 
I was convinced I was done that day. I was convinced. But miraculously, I kept my job. However, did Skanska call me back? They didn't. But I'd like to think that's because they shut down the Rocky Mountain District just after my internship ended. And so with that, Skanska packed up shop. They weren't making enough money in Arizona. They're a public company and driven by shareholders. And when there's not enough billion-dollar projects in a region and, and they're not doing what they need to be doing, they pack up shop, lay everyone off, and go down the road. It's somewhat of a ruthless ruthless business, but that's just how the big construction companies are. They don't, they don't have a whole lot of regard for folks is what I've learned, but that's just the way they all do it. I mean, it's not really anything against Skanska. It's the way every big construction company is in reality. So that left me with no options open for my last summer. And I went into junior year and junior year probably kicked the shit out of me the most of any of the years. We had some brutal classes. I think the most brutal by far was my circuits class. It was either I could either take thermodynamics or circuits. They were kind enough to leave you with that choice of shit or shittier. I thought the less shitty option was circuits, and I was, in fact, terribly wrong. Like I said in the previous episode, my mind doesn't work with math. My mind doesn't work with physics. It took me two times to pass physics, and then I barely failed. I I barely passed physics, too. So circuits is physics. It's electricity. I get to circuits class. I study my ass off for a semester. I studied harder than ever before. And what do I get? I get a D in the class. And that proved to me, and people lie to you growing up. They say, if you work hard enough, you can get an A, which is total bullshit, in my opinion, because I busted my ass. I worked harder than I ever had before, and I got a D. Sometimes you just don't get it. You just don't get it. But fortunately... That was a passing grade. I could accept a D on my transcript and move on. And so that's what I did. I took that D and it was the best damn D I'd ever gotten in my life. And it wasn't the first, but I was very excited about it. I was very proud of that, that grade because I passed that class and I never had to go back. So I went through my junior year looking for other opportunities and a company called Hayden Building Corp came up and they were a local heavy construction and general contractor in town. And they were looking for an estimating intern. So I got to start working in their office as an estimating intern, doing takeoffs primarily. They would give me sets of plans. I would go build the plans. I would go create a model or take the CAD files and create a model out of it in ag tech. I would run my takeoff to see, okay, exactly how many cubic yards of material are on this project. I'd hand it to the estimators, and then I'd do my surface takeoff, materials takeoff. So I'd go through and calculate how much concrete there was, how much asphalt there was, how much curb and gutter. It was mind-numbing, and I never got that good at it, but I learned, I started to see how the estimating process comes together and how these estimators look at a job, look at a set of plans given to them by the government or a, a potential client, and how they arrive at a dollar amount. It's fascinating how contractors do it. And this is really the only industry where, you know, if you go build a car, the car manufacturer is going to go build the car, figure out their processes. Okay, it's going to cost us X amount of dollars. We'll price it, you know, a little bit over that. Construction's not that way. It's the only industry where you're trying to price the work before you have any idea what it's actually going to cost. 
So you just have to make a lot of educated guesses and hope you're right. So I got to see that, but I told them I don't want to be in Arizona my last summer. I am sick and tired of working in the heat. So I'm going to go work for another company and then I will come back to you my senior year. And they said, okay. So I went to go look for another company. I poked around. I got an offer from PCL for a a dam project that amazingly, I, I spoke with someone the other day. It still hasn't happened. So I don't know what I would have been building with them. But uh, with PCL, I got an offer or a potential opportunity with Sunt building a runway for the U.S. Air Force in Arkansas. But most excitingly, I found an opportunity with Peter Kiewit, the black and yellow, you know, infamous evil empire. And Kiewit's just notorious in the industry for being really damn good at what they do. And I was, I first got exposed to Kiewit because I did the ASCE or ASC, whatever it is, Reno competition. And like I just talked about, it's estimating focused. It's an estimating competition. So all these groups of college kids get together, form teams at their respective universities, all you know, construction schools around the United States. They converge on Reno once a year. And then there's different problems. So there's a mechanical problem. There's a heavy civil construction problem. There's a marine construction problem. There's all sorts of different categories. You enter a team in the category. They give you a project. You estimate the project. You present to a board of construction professionals. And then you're ranked and there's awards at the end. I wanted to be involved in that. And I'm not sure what it was. I think it was either my sophomore year. I think it was my sophomore year. So I went my sophomore year. Unfortunately the heavy civil construction team was full and they, you know, there were, there were some, there were some egos there and you know, we, we have it covered. Uh, we're, we're all good. So you might be able to be an alternate for us or there's a, a Marine construction team that just formed the Marine construction team was what I would say the misfits of the group. It was the kids that didn't get into the heavy civil group, but still wanted to be at the Reno competition, mostly to try to get a job because it's hard to leave the competition without getting a job, which is something most other industries and degree programs, they just can't say. Construction's very good at getting people jobs. Oddly enough, that's what college is supposed to be, but doesn't really do these days. So I joined the Marine construction team. And we didn't think a whole lot about it. We thought, ah, yeah, you know, building stuff and had our meetings and this is, this is going to be fun. But none of us had marine construction experience. I'd never even seen marine construction. I didn't know what the hell it was. The sponsor to marine, the marine construction problem was Peter Kiewit, their Northwest District based out of Vancouver, Washington. So we show up, we get our problem from Kiewit. It's building a pier at a cargo terminal at the port of Seattle. It had pile driving. It had dredging. It had all sorts of complicated elements to it. But, you know, simple marine construction elements at at the same time. It wasn't anything crazy. It was like maybe a $20, $25 million project. So this was before my pile driving experience. This was before seeing any kind of construction or anything of the sort. And so we sat in this damn hotel room and it's like, you have like 10 hours or 12 hours. I think you have 12 hours 
It's it's miserable. You you get it. I think you get it at like seven in the morning, and then you just work and work and work all the way through the day, and and, and the cutoff is like seven at night or six at night, and you turn it in, and then you present the next day. So you turn a single hotel room, you move all the damn furniture, you bring in folding tables, you set up your computer monitors, everyone's on their team, and and you try to break this problem down and, and put together a proposal and a presentation for the next day. Long story short, we came in dead last. We looked like total assholes in front of the Kiwit Marine Construction Professionals and in front of all the other schools there. Dead last, we obviously had absolutely no clue what we were doing. We misused all the equipment. We didn't know how pile driving worked. It was a complete disaster. And they let us know that because construction, that's the other thing about this industry is people, they're not afraid of being frank. So they frankly told us that we were complete assholes. That said, instead of just walking home with the tail between my tail between my legs, I was, I, I was enamored by Kiwit. These people, this was the first time I'd been around Kiwit folks. So I started talking with each and every one of them. How do I get a job with you? How'd you get a job here? What do you like about Kiwit? What do you guys even do? more I talked to him, the more I, I wanted to work for Kiwit. So that's how I got involved with Kiwit. Now, my last summer of college rolls around. I give Kiwit a call. Hey, I heard about you at Reno. I was part of the Marine construction team. I accidentally left out that we got our asses handed to us, hoping that they didn't know that. I said, I'd love to work for you. Just before Christmas, my junior year of college, they give me a job offer, $15, plus plenty of overtime, plus per diem, plus moving costs, you're going to Washington, bub. We'll let you know in a few months what project you're going to be on. And it wasn't just, it actually wasn't Washington. It was the choice of like five states. They had projects in Minnesota, Alaska, Nevada, California, Oregon, and Washington, I believe. So they said, we don't really know, and Hawaii, actually. We don't know where the hell you're going to be. We'll let you know. I think they let me know in April that you're going to Mount Vernon, Washington, and you're going to be working at a rock quarry doing drilling and blasting to build a jetty at the mouth of the Columbia River. I nearly shit myself. After working in the summer of Arizona and Southern California for three years, I was finally going to somewhere beautiful. So I drive up to Washington after I finish up my junior year by myself in my Toyota Camry, drive all the way up to Washington State from Phoenix and start working at Peter Kiewit. I show up to the quarry. I had a brief idea of what was going on, but this was the first time I'd ever been to a quarry before. It was beyond my expectations. I drove around. It was so damn cool. They had a PC 2000 excavator, the biggest machine I'd ever seen in my life. I'd been to Tanaha Hills my freshman year, but this was the biggest machine I'd I'd been around a working condition before. They had a 990 loader. They had a 998G model loading the rocks on it. They had rigid frame dump trucks. They had drills up top drilling for blasting. It was insane. And it was surrounded by mountains and beautiful trees and farmland. We were in the middle of nowhere. It was extraordinary. Best summer of my life. So much fun. So it was me and a guy named John Craig. The PM wasn't around. We maybe saw him like three or four times the whole summer. It was me and John Craig, who was like an engineer too, you know, still entry-level engineer in his 20s, running the job from an administrative perspective. And then Don Neary, the superintendent, the old time, you know, been been at Kiewit for 30 years, 
had, knew everything there was to know about moving rock. He was the one actually managing the operation. So there wasn't a whole lot of overhead. It was a small crew and it was a lot of responsibility for me, especially. So I got a rental. I rented a room at an old lady's house in Mount Vernon, Washington. That was the best option I'd found. It was absolutely horrible. I shared a bathroom with an old woman that I didn't know for a few months in a small bedroom in the back of her house with lots of cats. And I would go to work every day and focus on the drilling and blasting. So pretty quickly, so I was doing all the tracking. So, you know, as an engineer, you do all the quantities. We were working for the Army Corps of Engineers and they had specific requirements. So they wanted this many of this size rock. They wanted this many of this size rock. There were certain classes of rock that we needed to produce and ship to the Columbia River, which was 1,300 miles away. So we were the ones in charge of making sure that we were creating and tracking all that rock going out the front gates. It was, I think, an 80, a total of 82,000 tons of rock, ranging from 6 to 30 tons each. So we were shipping single rocks that were 30 tons on low boys out those gates to uh, 30 miles down the road to a, an awaiting barge, put them on the barge, and then the barge brought them down to the Columbia River. It was badass. My main job there was tracking the drilling and blasting. Usually drilling and blasting is not simple, but it's pretty scientific. You're basically just blowing the piss out of, out of the rock. So you're loading it, it good blasting anyway, you're trying to turn the rock into a very nice fragmentation, a nice reasonable size. So it's, you can dig it very easily. So you can load trucks very quickly. And then you're trying to maximize, you know, how quickly your crusher can accommodate this material. So a lot of operations try to skimp out on powder. They don't like to blast it as well as they should be. But that's the goal of most blasting is to turn it to sugar, turn big rock into very small rocks. So you can dig it very quickly. What we were doing, we were after medium-sized rock. So we didn't want to turn it to sugar. So the blasting that we were doing was really odd. It, we were trying different things, and each blast kind of looked a little different from the next because we had to try different means and methods to try to create the rocks that we were after. So we didn't want too much small stuff because all of that was, was non-usable. We wanted the 6 to 30 ton stones. So we wanted to produce as many 6 to 30 ton stones as we can while minimizing that waste product. So that's what I was doing was I was up on this little hill with this blaster, Kenny Stevens, who had been doing it for decades. And I was loading every shot with him. So I would go get the powder from the powder from the magazines with him from the trailer. I'd get all the blasting caps and the boosters with him. I'd lay everything out on the shot. I would tie it all in with them. I'd put the boosters in the hole. I would pour the ANFO in the hole, ammonium nitrate fuel oil. We were using the, the pellets, 50-pound bags. A lot of big operations have a truck full of it with a tube and it makes it real easy and, and real quick to load shots. Nope, we had 50-pound bags that we would have to wrestle and tear open and, and put into these holes. And then even better... We had to stem all the holes. So we had 40 to 50 foot holes that we had to stem, which is filling the hole up after you put the explosives in the bottom with gravel to keep the energy inside of the rock or else the energy just flies out the top of the hole. We had to stem each hole with a five gallon bucket. So 
Kenny would try to get as much gravel as he could around each hole with like a little forklift and a bucket. But all we really had was a five-gallon bucket. So it was hours and hours of just straight labor with a five-gallon bucket trying to fill these damn holes before each shot. We'd finally get it all tied in, and at the end of the day, we'd shoot almost every day. I would go you know, to the field next door to make sure there were no farmers driving down the road next to the quarry, next to the shot, and Kenny would shoot it. I would film a lot with drone, uh, so I'd get to see it up close, but that's how it would go. And then we would check it. We would declare, yep, it was all clear. And then my job the following day was creating a blast plan, basically saying, here was the shot. Here's how much of each explosive we used for tracking purposes. So the ATF, you know, knew that we were consuming all the explosives we said we were. So we weren't stealing and and making bombs out of it because we did have a trailer full of, you know, 50,000 pounds of explosives. And then uh, recording each of the blasts so we could look back and, okay, we got these results. Here is the pattern that we laid out. Here's how we laid out each shot. Here was the powder factor. And every shot needed to be recorded. So that's what I would do. My other big task of the summer was we had a a woman in the scale shack measuring uh, the weight of each rock going onto each truck. She was very pregnant and she had her baby Uh, maybe midway through the summer. So from then on, I was part-time in the scale shack measuring rocks. So weighing the trucks on the scales, and then the loader would come up, the 988 loader, and some of these rocks would be, you know, the ass end of the loader would be right up in the air. It'd be on two wheels trying to get this rock onto the, the truck. There were two guys on the deck with dunnage, you know, big 12 by 12 timbers, under these rocks so we didn't just destroy the trailers that we were putting them on and kind of wrestled them onto place, chained them up, and then the trucks were off. I'd give them the ticket, make sure they weren't overloaded. And then every single truck out that door was tracked. So every day you could see exactly how many loads we got, exactly the size of each rock on there. And then we take that data, put it into our totals, and we could report back to Kiwit Corporate, yep, this is the progress we're making. And this is how many more rocks of each category we need. So that was that. That was Kiwit. It was badass being 21 years old, doing drilling and blasting. And better yet, I was in the Pacific Northwest. So every weekend, my friends and I, I had a few friends up there. We'd be backpacking in the Cascades. We'd be backpacking in Olympic National Park. We'd be climbing Mount Hood. We'd be going up to Vancouver in in Canada. We'd be all over the place. So it was just an, an extraordinary summer, um, personally. And then just seeing how Kiwit operates was well worthwhile because Kiwit is a damn machine. Their equipment department is top notch. Their management is top notch. They come in, they blow and go, they go on down the road. They're an extraordinary company. That said, I did not want to work with them after that summer because I got to see the lifestyle that these guys lived. They beat the hell out of people. And again, it's it's not it's nothing against Kiwid. It's what these big construction companies do. It's how their business models are, you know, the business models are centered on using people for as many hours as possible, especially salary people. They just use people, they move them around. Like the project manager we were under in five years, I think he'd moved six times. They tell you what to do, where to go, and and your life belongs to the company. And one day, 
you're going to make a ton of money if you last, if you last. And, and I just wasn't willing to do that. It wasn't my cup of tea. I wanted to be in a more sustainable, I wanted to live a more sustainable lifestyle. I wanted some kind of life after school. I didn't want to just be owned by a company entirely. So I got a job offer from Kiwit after that, but I turned them down. And instead, like I'd mentioned before, that the estimating job I'd had my junior year, I went to them and said, can I have a job after school out of state? I knew they were working in Texas. They had a few highway and road construction projects in Texas. I was actually working on estimating some. And they said, fine, you can go to Texas. So I signed a job offer, I think in September, my senior year of college. And it was really nice to know exactly where I was going after school, what I was going to get paid and had that taken care of while all my friends were sitting there like, oh no, graduation is next year. Oh no, that means I need a job. Again, if you want a job, if you want job security after school, construction is a very good industry to get into. You will have a job. It's very hard not to find a job. And if you don't have a job at graduation, you're an idiot. I mean, everyone has a job upon graduation. So I signed an offer letter with Hayden Building Corp out with the intention of going into Fort Worth, Texas. And I worked with them all my senior year. I'm doing about 20, 25 hours a week in the estimating office doing exactly what I was doing before. Takeoffs. Takeoff after takeoff after takeoff. Counting quantities, counting dirt, making sure the estimators had all the data and numbers they needed to estimate projects accordingly. Now, before I get to graduation, Hayden, I did want to mention a little bit about my other construction experiences. So by the time I'd graduated, I had worked for five construction companies doing five very different tasks in five very different places. I had gotten a lot of experience very quickly. I'd seen a lot and I had seen from the ditch to the estimating office to the the field office. I'd seen a lot of aspects of the industry as well. But while I was a junior and senior primarily, I had the habit of either finding cool projects in town, walking up to the job trailer and asking for tours. Or when I was traveling, I'd see cool projects. I would call the name on the sign out front and also ask for a tour. So I got to see some remarkable projects like the seawall project in Seattle, airport projects, dam projects, probably the coolest one of them all. My friend and I, we told WashDOT, Washington Department of Transportation up in Washington State that we were kids in school doing a thesis on the tunnel project, the SR99 viaduct replacement, the the tunnel that they just bored underneath the city of Seattle. We were doing no such thing, but we wanted a tour and we figured that was the easiest way to do it. And amazingly, they oblige. So one day... Flew up to Seattle for fun, and we got a tour of what was then the largest tunnel boring machine in the entire world. It was boring. It was called Bertha. She's a very well-known tunnel boring machine because she got stuck a little bit before that. But we had toured the project just after she got unstuck and started making real good progress under the city of Seattle. So we got to go inside of the boring machine. We got to go all the way to the cutting head. It was freaking remarkable. So beyond my construction experience, I had got to just see a lot of construction projects as well and ask a lot of questions and and got to see different construction processes. So when I graduated, I was in a good spot. Before graduation, I 
was listening to a podcast called The MF CEO Project by Andy Fursella. I've talked with him a lot. I, I, I haven't talked to him a lot. I've never talked to Andy, but I, I've, I've listened to him a lot. So I started listening to Andy many, many years ago now when he started the MF CEO Project. I found Andy because I followed a car page and they posted about his Lamborghini one time. So I started following this guy. Okay, this guy's pretty badass. He came out of the podcast. Okay, I'll listen to it. And I'd never stopped listening to it. After a few years of listening to it, he had a few episodes about social media and how to use social media and how to create a brand and how social media is a tool and a business tool and you can go create amazing things with it and how to do that. And the gears started turning. How do I use social media as a tool? I've told the story a bunch, but I saw that construction, there, there wasn't a high level of storytelling. Some people were posting pictures about it online, but there wasn't anything extraordinarily high quality about the storytelling there. So I thought I could approach it in a very high quality manner while also approaching it from my point of view, from this young engineer who had worked at a bunch of different jobs, had a ton of different pictures from all the projects and and everything I'd visited and was going into the construction industry. So I was listening to a podcast one day, riding my bike home from school. I was listening to one of Andy's podcasts. It was probably the fifth time I'd listened to this particular episode, and it struck me like a bolt of lightning. I need to go create a construction Instagram account. So I went home, I got a yellow legal pad, and I started jotting down names, and BuildWit was one of them. After looking at the list for a little bit, I circled BuildWit, created the account, got all my construction pictures together on my phone, went through my library, created an album, got every construction picture from every job I'd had together, and I started sharing them online. So by the time I'd graduated college, I had a few thousand followers. I'd been doing it for maybe six, eight weeks before graduation. I'd maybe had like 2,000 followers, maybe 3,000 followers. It, It was starting to grow, but it wasn't anything crazy. It took probably four weeks for it to get any kind of traction whatsoever. It was really just me and my friend Kevin liking each photo for the first few weeks. It started to take off though. I had a few thousand. I was pretty stoked about it. So I moved out to Fort Worth, Texas with this small little BuildWit social media following and started working at Fort Worth on a road construction project. What we were doing was in Fort Worth, they were building a big stadium primarily for the rodeo. It's this beautiful, beautiful stadium. It's, It's really an amazing building. And the street alongside it called Montgomery street needed to be reconfigured and upgraded to accommodate the increased traffic flow upon big events at the stadium. And then also coincidentally, we picked up the job right next to that tying into Montgomery street drainage. And it was a box culvert up into the Arlington Heights neighborhood. So we had two projects simultaneously that we rolled into one with the city of Fort Worth. They were both with the city and it was a construction manager at risk project, a CMAR. So it was a negotiated contract. It wasn't low bid and we were going to manage the work and self-perform the work. I was one of two project engineers on the job and my primary responsibility was overseeing the Arlington Heights drainage improvement project, which was installing the box culvert. So this job was me 
running around and making sure everything was okay. It was a lot of babysitting. It was a lot of uh, making sure the residents were happy since we were digging a 25-foot hole in front of their driveway and they weren't too stoked about it, understandably. We were laying you know, big 11-by-6 box culvert with a Hitachi 650 right there in this small small street under power lines and in between water lines, and it was a pretty gnarly, gnarly job. And that was my job, was to manage this work. Now, I think I'm going to wrap up part two here. And talk about the Arlington Heights project and and Hayden Building Corp on the next one. I promise you I will have a guest next episode. I promise. I have some good ones coming up. Bear with me here. We're just going to continue this little series. Why make it in only a two-part series when there's enough stories to tell for a few more parts? So I want to go more in-depth on Hayden Building Corp, on how BuildWit got momentum how I found HCSS and worked there for, for a little bit, and then how I got to starting the company. So I will pause here, put a bookmark in it, and we will return in a few weeks. Hopefully you find this valuable. Hopefully me talking isn't the absolute worst and these download numbers are dramatically lower than the rest. I really do hope you're enjoying this. I'm just trying to come at it from the most honest viewpoint I have and just kind of retelling my story the best I can. If you enjoyed it, if you know someone that that might also enjoy it, please, please share the podcast. We're trying to grow it. I hear so many good things about it. I'm, I'm really happy that so many people are finding value and listening to it. So if you're one of those people, if nothing else, please share it. We're not doing any advertising. We're not making any money on this. I'm dedicating a lot of my time to it personally to make it happen. The least you can do to help me out is to share it. And with that, I'll see you on the next week. I appreciate you listening and stay safe out there.